everyone, and welcome, welcome very warmly to this Signum University thesis theater event. I'm really pleased to have Gwen Grant here, and I will introduce her to you in just a moment. I want to give a couple of Signum announcements and some logistics for how everything will work today. So um, I'm Serena Higgins, faculty member at Signum, and I was Gwen's advisor for this project. And I want to invite you to check out the other events and things that Signum has to offer. Right now we are in our fundraising season. So if you like this event and would like to see more like it, you can go to the link I just put in the questions or chat box and help to support Signum University. I encourage you to poke around the website and see all the details you need about the master's degree program, about the technical training courses, the free events and book club type of um, courses and all the other things that Signum has to offer. And let me know if you have any questions. As we go through this event today, please do ask Gwen any questions that you have. You can type them into the questions box and I'll probably keep them all and ask her at the end unless there's one that's like, oh, this is really pressing, you know, needs to pop in during her presentation part, but I'll probably just collect those questions. But type them when you think of them um, so you don't forget, you know, what you want to say, that kind of thing, and then feel free to ask more at the end. If anybody has one that you really need to say out loud, um, you can put that in the chat and give me like a short version of it and then I can unmute you and you can share your question at the end when the time comes. And of course, if there's any technical difficulty or anything like that, pop that in the questions box as well. Okay, well, let me introduce today's presenter. Gwen has been studying with Signum University since 2016, focusing on language and literature. She's interested in linguistics, poetics, and also has a background in fine arts and art history. And she also studies theory, mythology, and the occult and fantastic literature about which you will hear a little bit more today. And for her day job, she works in publishing. Now, I just want to say when Gwen and I were meeting for our advisor advisee sessions, it really didn't feel like that. It really felt like we were two people interested in the same weird niche topic. We just got together for like an academic jam session. It was so fun. And I hope that this will be like that today. So Gwen will start out presenting and then take your questions. Are you ready? I am. Okay. Hey. So, uh, so can everyone see my slides? Can you see my slides, Serena? I can, yes. Okay, so um, so yeah, as, as Serena says, um, yeah, type questions as you think of them. I'm gonna talk um, for around 20 minutes, um, just take you through um, take you through my thesis, um, kind of what I did, the ideas that were involved. Um, and uh, then, yeah, if, if you have any questions, uh, we'll chat about them. Um, so my thesis title is Sound and Ritualistic Language in Charles Williams' War in Heaven. Um, my thesis aimed to uncover a link between sound and ritualistic language in the novels of Charles Williams. Um, it aimed to explore both if a link exists and the methods of discovering that link. And so it was designed as a preliminary study um, to see if further research was warranted. Um, for this reason, I've only analysed the first published of William's novels, War in Heaven. Um, a spoiler alert, uh, a link was uncovered um, specifically between uh, fricative sounds and ritualistic language in this particular novel. 
Um, so this presentation will give you an overview of how that conclusion has been reached. Um, so first I'll talk a little bit about how I came to this idea, um, William's background in the ritual of occult societies and existing links between sound and ritual outside of um, novels. Um, so this should provide some insights as to why a link between sound and ritualistic language um, in William's novels is plausible. Um, I'll then go on to describe uh, the methods of data collection and analysis that I use to test this hypothesis. Um, so uh, for, I'd, I'd always intended to write my thesis on um, something around sound in poetry. Um, that was kind of one of my primary interests um, coming into this master's programme. And I originally wanted to write about Tolkien. Um, but then uh, the final class that I took um, for the master's degree was the Inklings and King Arthur, uh, which ran last summer. Um, and in that class, we read Charles Williams' Arthurian poetry. Um, so even though I have always loved Charles Williams' novels, um, I'd somehow managed to never read his poetry. Um, and um, and I, I really, really loved it. Um, one of the things that I was really struck by was how similar his um, poetic style is to his prose style. Um, and one of the things that I love about William's novels is is his is his poetic writing style um, and his like, ability to create this feeling of otherness um, or of the ineffable um, when he writes. Um, so I was already aware that the kind of transcendental flavour of his writing was related to his involvement in the occult circles of the early 20th century. Um, so I decided to explore if there was a specific um, stylistic um, devices that could um, could be contributing to this link within his novels um, and sound is what I wanted to look at. Um, so Williams, just as a bit of background, Williams was a long term member of an organisation called the Fellowship of the Rosy Cross. Um, which uh, was an offshoot of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, which was um, kind of one of the one of the most prominent occult societies of the early 20th century. Um, he reached the highest attainable grade in the Fellowship of the Rosy Cross and was very close to its founding um, its um, founding member A. E. Waite. Um, his he was also potentially a member of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. Um, this is based on some research by uh, his recent biographer, Greville Lindop. Um, although it, it's, it's, I think that he was a member of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, just on my opinion, but there is no kind of solid, um, there's no kind of solid evidence of that. He's not listed in any of the membership lists, for example. Um, so this part of his life fed directly into his creative work um, and, and particularly into the novels that he wrote, um, which are saturated with occult symbolism. Um, so, for example, War in Heaven is based around um, the Arthurian legend of the Grail. Um, so the kind of oc an occult reading of the Grail legend was a particular preoccupation of both A.E. Waite and uh, Williams. Um, Williams got many of his ideas about the Grail legend from Waite's research. Um, the novel also has quite an overt, like quite overt ritualistic content, um, kind of mostly in mostly in a negative sense. So one of the main characters, Gregory Persimmons, is a Satanist who performs black magic, um, black magic rituals with a couple of other of the characters, um, and they. They are quite clearly based on real life um, kind of black magic rituals. 
Um, so the reason why this link is important is I've just lost my place. Uh, the reason why this link is important is because um, kind of Golden Dawn style occultism of, of that era um, had a particular focus on the magical use of the imagination um, to achieve um, transcendental states during ritual, um, with the main goal uh, being union with the divine. And this, this idea continued into the Fellowship of the Rosy Cross. Um, so early 20th century occultism routinely used visualization techniques in order to elevate consciousness and achieve transcendental states. Um, the image visualized was considered um, to be physically created on, on like a higher imaginative plane, um, meaning that the imagination uh, becomes a bridge between the physical and the spiritual worlds. Um, so this means that in terms of, of William's novels in particular, um, as, a no as a work of his imagination, um, his novels can be considered to be created on this higher plane both by the author writing and the reader reading the text. Um, the author can communicate their experience of the imaginative plane, including the elevation of consciousness that this brings directly to the reader um, who can potentially experience that for themselves by reading their novels. Um, so to add to this, so Bearing this in mind, one of the one of the main scholars that I looked into in this thesis was Aaron Rukma, um, who's who's a very prominent Williams scholar. Um, so his recent book, Esotericism and Narrative, focuses on the occult influences in uh, in Williams' work. Um, so Rukma's study of the Fellowship of the Rosy Cross rituals shows that part of Williams' final obligations to the Fellowship involved taking on the role of a teacher. Um, and like specifically instructing him to go out into the world and um, share his knowledge of the secret tradition to all those um, who would or could listen. Um, just to explain the secret tradition is a kind of a catch-all term for the body of occult knowledge that is taught in these um, societies. Um, so Rokma theorises that Williams fulfilled part of this obligation through the writing of his novels. Um, they're intended to um, convey the ineffable nature of the secret tradition through their themes and, and style and through the, the symbolism used. Um, so this obviously changes the way we think about William's novels. Um, if the novels were intended to teach the experience of the secret tradition, um, they can be viewed as being ritualistic in themselves. Um, uh, that that added element of in, of intention um that that added element of intention um to kind of introduce the reader to the imaginative imaginative plane um means that the novels become kind of channels of magical communication um through and of the ineffable um kind of through language um so I have a little on the next slide I've got a little kind of diagram to try and to try and make this a bit clearer um so. Over on the left here, uh, we have the author experience um, of ritual magic, which is, is kind of a, a two-way two feedback and how the, their experience of ritual magic um, elevates them to the imaginative plane, which is on the top here. So they take this experience um, into their writing, um, which then 
um, feeds into into kind of the scenes of ritual magic or other kinds of ritual with within their writing, which then exists on the imaginative plane as as kind of a physical construct. Um, so this then feeds into um, the reading the reading of the novel and the reader experience, um, which then elevates the reader um, back onto the same imaginative plane kind of providing that link between the physical and the spiritual and providing that link between author and reader. Um, so this was this was kind of the 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 kind of the link between between occultism and uh, what Williams was trying to do with his novels that I was looking for as a, as a kind of like a basis on which to work from stylistic methods that he could have been using. Um, so as I mentioned, I focused on the role of sound. Um, so kind of the the ability of of the text to provide this link between author, reader, and the the kind of transcendent transcendental experience is closely linked to Williams' theories on poetics. Um, so the first point here is a quote from one of Williams' books, Poetry at Present. Um, which he wrote about the same time as the publication of War in Heaven. And um, so here he's talking uh, specifically about love poetry. Um, so he says, poetry is an effort not only to tell us what love can do and be, not even only to show us love doing and being, but almost to be love doing and being. Um, so here he's kind of what he's saying here is that kind of through the unique form and structure of poetry, uh, he believes that poetry has a creative ability that is kind of similar to the creative ability of um, the kind of the Golden Dawn style visualization techniques mentioned earlier. And um, so poetry doesn't just describe something but becomes an instance of the thing that it is about. Um, so in my thesis, I link this to Roman Jakobson's poetic function, um, but I thought rather than go down that rabbit hole here, um, I, it would be kind of quicker, easier <laughs> to um, to show how this links to the kind of being and doing in a couple of golden dawn ritual techniques that relate specifically to sound. Um, so full descriptions of these of these techniques can be found in Israel Regardi's The Golden Dawn. Um, which also publishes all of the rituals, if anyone is interested. Um, so the first technique is the analysis of keywords. Um, this can be performed, this is a ritual that can be performed by one person, um, but is also built into the other grade rituals. Um, so in this ritual, each line or sound is shared among the celebrants and the letters of a specific name or word are sounded out individually. Um, which draws out uh, the divine word, highlighting the quality of each sound. Um, so what this does is is kind of builds uh, kind of a layered web of symbolism as each each the quality of each sound represents um, a different idea and then is brought together as a whole into into that word, uh, into that single word, which then kind of builds the power of that word. Um, so the vibration of divine names um, is the second technique. Um, so this is used in many rituals, including the lesser ritual of the pentagram, um, which we know was known to Williams. Um, it's a combination of the raising of consciousness, visualization and outward sound. Uh, the name to be vibrated is visualized in the heart in a brilliant white light and then released through the sounds of the word by pronouncing it very slowly and deliberately. 
and the quality of the sound is evoked inwardly, uh, created on the imaginative plane, and then concentrated during an outward release, uh, transferring the energy of the sound from the imaginative, imaginative plane to our own reality. Um, so as you can see in these rituals, the use of sound kind of transforms the imagined idea or the, the kind of the symbol of the idea that is represented by that sound into a physical force. Um, so in a, in a sense, it is um, it is language doing and being in the same in the a kind of a similar sense to how Williams is is here describing poetry. Um, so so yeah so you know established a link between uh, sound and ritual that is based on the quality of the sound of sound in language, and there's an established reason as to why Williams might want to use um, a technique such as this to convey occult meaning within his novels. Um, so the next thing I will show you is how I explored this. Um, so as previously mentioned, I took the alternative approach um, through data analysis to test my hypothesis. Um, so this is mainly because I wanted kind of provable results that took into account the whole text rather than just relying on close reading. Um, so first I needed to distinguish between areas of the text that contained an emphasis on particular sounds. Um, so I transcribed the entire novel into the phonetic alphabet in order to be able to pick out these sounds and analysed the frequency of sounds within, within each sentence. Um, so I decided to focus on consonant sounds and in particular on manner of articulation. Um, so what I did was um, groups, group the sounds uh, within each sentence into, manner, into their different kind of groups of manners, manner of articulation and um, then uh, calculated frequency based on that. Um, so the next thing that I needed to do was um, find how to, how to categorise each sentence based on a dominant sound. Um, so this was not as simple as just categorising the sentences by the most frequent sound, um, as some sounds will naturally occur more frequently others due to the sound structure of the language. Um, the sound must be considered dominant because it occurs significantly more often than, av than the average proportion that that sound would be present in all sentences. Um, so, in, and I also needed to do this across nearly 15,000 sentences um, for the whole book. Um, so in order to do this, I used a k-means clustering algorithm to find groups of sentences that were similar to each other. Um, and apply that kind of dominant sound label to those sentences. Um, I then analysed the sentences in each in each kind of in each group that came out of that to find which dominant sound they represented, um, giving me my sound categories. Um, so once that was done, I had to apply that back to the text. Um, so I could I I looked for uh, kind of runs of sentences where the dominant sound was persistent. Um, considering three sentences of the same dominant sound together as being significant. Um, and so once I'd identified those areas, I could go back to um, back to the novel and look at the content of those areas and then kind of try and match up types of content with types of sound um, to discover if there, there was any, any kind of correlation between the two. Um, so I'll go uh, straight on to the results. So as I mentioned right at the beginning, um, I did find a link uh, specifically between 
uh, fricative sounds and um, and ritualistic content. So here is an example of one of the sections of the book that that shows this. Um, so just to be clear, fricative sounds are things like ver, fer, uh, the, the, and her. So they're sounds that are kind of created with um, kind of a a vibratory, a vi like vibratory feeling, which is important. Um, so as you can see in this uh, in this graph on the right here, um, the numbers on the y-axis um, represent the number of the sentence within the book. So each one of these bars uh, represents a sentence. Uh, the length of the bar represents the uh, length of the sentence, and the colour of the bar represents the, the sound category or the, the dominant sound um, that has been that that sentence has been categorised as. So as you can see, this is a run of like nine or ten. I'm not sure at the moment. I can't count um, sentences that have a like much higher than average fricative content. Um, so I found like there was a general trend across the text that when um, kind of blocks of blocks of colour like this happened, it tended to be on areas of, of like high ritualistic content. So the text here um, describes a um, describes one of the characters, Prester John, um, basically overthrowing uh, a black magic ritual um, towards the end of the book, um, kind of. He's kind of like producing a counter spell to to their spell, and he's he's getting he's getting rid of rid of the bad guys. Um, so just just to demonstrate um, why this is significant in the contrast, um, on the next slide here, I have an example of um, a kind of similarly sized section of text um, that uh, is not. That doesn't have any kind of significant ritualistic content. So this this was one of the most mundane sections of the book that I could find. Actually, um, it's basically just a few of the characters deciding what they're going to do the next day. Um, so as you can see, um, the the kind of the dominant sounds kind of almost become completely random. There's there's not there's not any pattern to them. Um, so it's quite a significant difference between like a whole a whole block or run of one particular kind of sound. Um, so to me anyway, this this kind of like quite strongly demonstrates that there is a definite link between this type of sound and this type of content. Um, so as I as I said that, you know, fricative sounds are specifically that they're, they're vibratory sounds, um, which you've probably made the link already, um, <laughs> kind of um, link quite well to the specific technique I described earlier, the vibration of divine names. Um, so I think this this is you know that kind of enhances the significance of this finding. It's not just that there is a type of sound that's associated with ritualistic content. It's that the the specific type of sound that is 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 significant um, to the specific um, kind of the specific techniques that Williams was familiar with. Um, so at the same time, this is not to say that um, Williams was deliberately doing this, um, because I don't think that I can go as far as saying that, but there, there is definitely a significant link. Um, so I'm just going to do a little time check. OK. <laughs> um, so due to the time check, time check I'll, I'll skip this slide. 
and I'll go on to what's next. Um, so obviously, as I said, this is kind of a preliminary study um, to see if it's worth uh, any further work. And I do think from the results that it is worth further work. Um, so the kinds of things that I'm planning on doing are a uh, kind of verifying the results um, with this particular data set. Um, just to make sure that it's, it's, you know, I haven't done anything crazy somewhere. Um, so obviously then there is also um, applying the same methods to William's other six novels um, to see if there, if this kind of sound content relationship remains consistent or even if it changes to a different sound. Um, and if so, kind of what, you know, what would that mean? What, you know, what significance would that different sound have? Um, I could also apply the same methods to the actual um, like Golden Dawn ritual texts or the Fellowship of the Rosy Cross ritual texts um, to see if they also follow a similar pattern. Um, so there are other things I could do as well, like compare William's use of sound to his novels, um, the, in, the use of sound in his novels with that of standard English um, and also explore other aspects of sound such as rhythm or stress. Um, uh, yeah, so there's obviously lots of work to still be done and um, thanks for listening and uh, yeah, any questions? Awesome, thank you. Everyone is applauding silently. Ah. Oh, that was magnificent. Um, Chris Swank says that she's sure your research will be published and make a significant contribution to William's <laughs> studies, which I'm also convinced of. Do you have plans for sending it out? Yes, yes I do. Um, so I am planning on submitting this to, I have a journal in mind um, to submit this to and I also have a conference in mind um, to maybe not submit this this exact paper to you but to um, maybe do, do like a talk proposal to do a little bit of the like extended research that I was talking about there um to yeah talk about that yeah that would be really great to continue the work like you said um joe asks a really good sensible question is a high density of fricatives caused by archaic third person verbs like hath and doth or is there something else going on too yes um that is an element um definitely uh if i find this again so um so yeah and it's it, it's quite it's it's quite obvious as well in this particular um in this particular extracts um so so um just oh sorry i clicked <laughs> um so yeah obviously we have his mercy endureth forever rather than his mercy endures forever there's there's hath somewhere there's yeah um it does have a significant impacts um but i i, I kind of um so I consider the choice of archaic language to be a deliberate device there because the choice it doesn't just it doesn't just kind of give it that archaic sense it does change the sound structure of the sentence um so hmm, let me think of a particular section that I Yeah, so I think it is in this repetition of his mercy, mercy endureth. I even did it then, mercy, um, endureth forever. <laughs> um, 
so um so this is actually a line from a psalm um it's not william's line um some of you've probably recognized it um so so what this what this does um if it was his mercy mercy endures forever um then this the kind of the sir sound in mercy is associated with the z kind of sibilant sound at the end of endures by kind of transforming that to a th sound um what it's done is brought the sir sound more in line with the fricatives um which you know sibilants are kind of a subset of fricatives and it's also it's also kind of linked the endure f to the forever kind of the f and the verse sound more is linked it more closely to that word so we've got a sentence here which which kind of builds you've you've got his mercy endure f forever and i think it kind of because of the because of the kind of switch between the th and the f and the ver there it it slows the sentence right down um and kind of yeah draws out those two words and kind of comes to rest which which almost i like, kind of gives it a bit more gives it a bit more grandeur not because it not just because it's archaic um but because but because of that of that sense of pacing as well it, it makes it makes the whole sentence more forceful kind of more incantatory um yeah. uh yeah that makes a lot of sense and I, I just wondered while you were talking and we discussed this a teeny bit in our meetings whether there's also some influence from the hebrew language coming in and from you know specific mm -hmm. letters and names and things because specifically in the golden dawn they were using this ancient jewish mysticism mm -hmm. and they spent a lot of time meditating on the names of god and the hebrew letters so i wonder if there's some influence there those although yeah. The words I'm thinking of might be more gutturals than fricatives. Yeah, but they're they're kind of it's a similar I suppose it's a similar sort of um, yeah it's it's a similar complexity of sound it's a similar kind of like vibratory kind of yeah I think. Hmm. Hmm. I mean, y'all, the two things that blew my mind in this research were one this thing about the fricatives like are you serious <laughs> we both were kind of intuiting but then you actually did the hard science and it's like seriously the fricative count goes up in highly ritualistic passages that just blew yeah. my mind um so i wasn't expecting that so i i actually i i did go into this blind um it could have gone either way the results could have shown absolutely nothing or they could have shown a thing and i was lucky that they showed a thing really and even luckier that they showed such a significant thing <laughs> yeah oh can i tell them my my little side story about the novel i was reading for fun oh yeah yeah go for it yeah <laughs> so at the same time um as gwen was finishing this up i was reading lev grossman's awesome trilogy the magicians like where has this been all my life and there are several passages like the following in this novel this character amanda's voice broke the silence she was chanting a spell rhythmically and rapidly but calmly the spell was nothing like quentin had ever heard an angry powerful piece of magic full of vicious fricatives it was offensive <laughs> magic battle magic designed to literally rip an opponent to pieces and there's another passage towards the end of the trilogy when someone is doing the most amazing magic that's been done yet and it emphasizes the fricatives again so like this is a thing. That's a thing. <laughs> this is a thing in ritual language. Um, Brenton asks a closely related question. Isn't archaism itself a kind of ritualistic writing, like evocation of the old, the mythical, the liturgy, scripture, etc.? Yeah, yeah, I think it is. They yeah, they they 
they love it in the golden dawn especially <laughs> you know every yeah it, it gets to a part of a ritual so there's there's kind of like there's there's kind of like two halves to a ritual some of it is instructional and some of it is in is intended to to kind of like induce that that like transcendental feeling and you you know when it's switching from the instructional to to the kind of to the magical because the archaic language is is ramped up to 11. Um, so yeah I, it does give it that kind of yeah I suppose that sense of grandeur and importance um and yeah it makes you feel like you're saying or listening to something that is significant yeah um now, Brendan has another question that I think follows up really well here, and you have an answer to. We talked about this and you wrote about it. Brendan, why don't I um, unmute you and you can ask your question about intentionality. Hi. Oh, uh, just uh, a compliment first, Gwen. I don't have a, a an immediate mind for this sort of analysis, so I'm really pleased that you did it. Uh, um, I, I couldn't have uh, done it, and I probably wouldn't have guessed that it could be done. Um, and I was just sort of sitting here. I actually sent Serena a personal note just because I was like, "What? And like, what's you know, <laughs> you know?" Uh, because you know, an MA thesis, we you can have in a sense a failed hypothesis that you confirm. Mm -hmm. That would be okay, right? Um, and you can learn other things along the way, but this one works, which is uh, sort of no wow. About a null hypothesis. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, I'm glad I'm glad it worked out anyway, which is always more encouraging than a failed one. But what mm -hmm. what I'm I'm thinking about the implications, which is sort of where I live mm -hmm. anyway. And the and you talked about the sort of the imaginative scope of the text, and we've got the author and the author's world and worldview and things like that. And you mentioned the idea of like what could Charles Williams be doing in the text, right? I think is one of the things that you said. And then from that, I was wondering, well, how would we, how, how would we know whether this was uh, Williams infusing the text with this meaning for poetic value or, or um, like evangelistic or sharing secret rights kind of value, um, or being infused in him, it coming out of himself yeah. accidentally as part of kind of his personal investment in this world. Um, and I, yeah, I don't know if you're at that point yet, but could, how could how could you evaluate the difference between those two things? Um, yeah, it, it's 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 kind of um, yeah, it, it's very difficult, and I'm I'm kind of yeah, I'm reluctant to sit on on either side of that because you know I do I do kind of come down on the side of well I don't think you you know you're, you're never going to be sure of an author's intentions and what they were what they were actually thinking when they were writing something. Um, but I I do I wonder if it's a bit of both. So um, one of the one of the pieces of research that I read for this was a paper by Alice Davidson. Um, and oh, I wish I could remember exactly what it was called now, but I can't. That's terrible, isn't it? <laughs> but she, so she, um, she looks at she looks at War in Heaven, and she looks at um, All Hallows Eve, and she discusses um, the how Williams considers language to be to be sacramental, um, and his kind of um, like really extreme precision of word choice. Um, she, yeah, she demonstrates his really extreme precision of word choice in within his novels, which I guess um, is 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 kind of something that is is expected in, in when writing poetry. You know, it's it's you expect kind of every word to have its place, but he kind of transfers that into his novels. So I think if you know if he's if he's if he's doing that kind of 
that kind of thing, then I don't I, I doubt very much that he would not consider the sounds that those that those words were creating if he's if he's very specifically choosing those words. At the same time, I don't think that he sat down and said, I'm going to make this sentence full of fricatives. Um, so so I do wonder, and this is why this is partly why I would like to do a kind of similar analysis on actual ritual texts, um, because um he he knew these texts off by heart. Um, he he could he could he could reel them off. He he not only kind of took part in rituals, he presided over rituals. He he kind of was the was the kind of the main celebrant in these things. So he knew these rituals like the back of his hand. And so you do wonder if if kind of if when he's trying to convey a similar thing, if if the if the kind of the general experience of the sound um, does unconsciously feed itself into what he's writing. You know, he might not be saying. I'm going to fill this sentence full of fricatives, but what he might be saying is this sentence sounds right. It, you know, it, there's something about it that sounds right, and it just happens to be that that's what it is, or part of what it is. It's probably not all of what it is by any stretch of the imagination. Hmm, Partly true. poet's instinct, right, with his ear yeah. and his training from those ten years. Mm -hmm. order. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and I suppose the Arthurian poetry would have a historical context that he's evoking in any case so mm -hmm. the archaisms fit might fit a double purpose and might be harder to interpret in that sort of sense mm. Mm. intriguing anyway I, I look forward to you spending a few years doing all the work and then i can just read it <laughs> nice fair enough <laughs> Um, you've been talking about methodology and your hypothesis and so forth, Gwen, and that you weren't sure what you're going to find. Well, Gabriel has a question about that. Uh, Gabriel, do you want to come on and ask ask your question out loud? Hi, yeah, thank you. Um, I mean, first of all, I just want to say it's, this is so cool and exciting. So well done, Gwen. It's, it's so cool for you to share this and, and amazing that you found all this stuff. Because one thing to have like a hunch, like if you just sort of described the concept, I would have said, yeah, fair enough. There probably is something there. But to actually kind of do the data analysis uh, and provide evidence of it is is really impressive. Um, when you were talking about the methodology, I was reminded of um, conversations I've had with science researchers, and sometimes uh, I've asked them like, "How's your work going?" And they <laughs> occasionally they said like, "Oh, terrible! Like I've spent, I wasted a whole month. Like I I was uh, running these experiments. I was hoping to see this link, but I didn't see it." So you know, all that time is gone. And this was always really foreign to me as an English literature person, because those dead ends are kind of like, that's almost the whole point. Like, you know, saying it, there is no link here is kind of like a thing that you say sometimes. But in this case, would that have been like a massive problem? Like, what, and did you think about this? If if you, if you didn't find a link, what, yeah. what did you think about what that would mean for your research? I did, yes, I thought about it. And I thought about it with fear um because yeah. because you know obviously i didn't i didn't you know i didn't have you know it, it was it was one go at it really um it was mm -hmm. it was an incredible amount of work just to transcribe the text and just to collect all of the data um so i had you know kind of one go at it and if it didn't work it didn't work and um so yeah a, pa a paper would have been written um <laughs> i'm actually not sure how it would have been written um right I suppose if I suppose if I hadn't found a link, um, 
then 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 the kind of the direction would maybe have been well there's 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 not a link between kind of this aspect of sound and this type of content so the next stage would have been to to explore other things like maybe try and explore other types of sound or as i said maybe maybe look at stress and or and pacing and that you know other kinds of techniques um right. because i think i i was always pretty sure that you know that williams was using some you know using some kind of of patterning a la the kind of the usual like poet like patterning used in poetry um it's just just where it was i think i i just i literally got lucky that it was the thing that i was looking at first maybe <laughs> at one stage well, i was pushing you to look at diction right and yeah at the very beginning i was like i want you to just do this the traditional way first and mm -hmm. then do the data collection and see if it supports it right but that would yeah. really be sort of a different project to reduce the novel to its its list of words and then see mm -hmm. word frequency and compare that to the rituals yeah yeah and i did start that i did i did do do quite a bit of that actually um and and yeah there are some you know williams williams language is always a bit curious anyway but and there are like specific areas of the text where he does like bust out weird words that are specifically like used used in rituals definitely yeah um, or the ones that he's either made up or made up a new application of yeah. them Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. Love of okay. <laughs> yeah sorry Gabe, gabriel did i cut you off was that that good uh no no that's great thank you very much Gwen. i mean i've got like a million questions but i'm trying to be professional and only ask one so i'll let someone else have a go and and uh, we've got a couple more back. here but then feel free to come round again okay um, thanks yeah Gwen, Greg thanks you for your fascinating talk and then asks what are your predictions as to the nature of sounds in williams's other work yeah. Um, I don't know actually. So the thing is that um, that War in Heaven and um, so Shadows of Ecstasy was written um, before War in Heaven, even though it was published after. And War in Heaven was written not too long, I think, after um, Williams left the Fellowship of the Rosy Cross. I don't know. Correct me if I'm wrong about that, Serena. Um, yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. It must. Yeah, it must be. So. Um, I'm wondering because the 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 style the writing style of his novels definitely evolves um as as you read through the seven and by the time you get to All Hallows Eve it's the whole novel is almost saturated by this kind of elevated style that he uses just in specific places in War in Heaven to kind of to kind of give that give that kind of like ineffable kind of transcendental atmosphere um so it would be, I don't think that the fricative thing would persist necessarily as being such a one-to-one -one relationship. Um, I think it's more likely that other aspects of sound would 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 come into play in a more like complex way as the novels go on and as, as his kind of writing style develops. Um, and also as he kind of moves away um, from, be, from his involvement in occult societies, maybe, you know, if there is kind of, this this idea of of the of kind of the the soundscape if you like of, of ritual language feeding through into his novels um then as he as he moves away from that period of his life it might become kind of watered down i suppose 
Um, saying that, um, he still kind of achieves similar effects in his later novels. He might just be doing it in a different way, I suppose. Oh, yeah, I, I want you to do that study because, <laughs> it, yes, he shifts away from occult activity specifically. You know, he leaves the Golden the, uh, Fellowship of the Rosy Cross. He may continue in this Golden Dawn thing for another 10 years, but by the time he moves to Oxford, yeah, he's not in any of those orders anymore. However, he's really made it his own, hasn't he? And he's mm. further Christianized it and further uh, creepified it as well in his personal relationships. <laughs> but then he starts the Companions of the Coherence, which is an order yeah, and has this promulgation and has and these like, quasi-magical interactions. And he's still using the lesser ritual of the pentagram. Yeah, that as well, actually, isn't he? Yeah. Teaching it to yeah. one of his young disciples then. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I would love to know what happens to the ritual language in um, All Hallows' Eve. Now, you originally were going to do two. It, it was All Hallows' Eve as well, right? Not Descent into Hell. Yeah, the other one was going to be All Hallows' Eve, um, mm -hmm. partly because it's the last book and partly because it's my favourite. <laughs> <laughs> that would be awesome. And then not only to see the frequency of these things there, but the particular occurrences, because that, that book is just so much magic but it's more clearly condemned in that novel. Yeah. I mean, if you compare Considine um, with Simon Leclerc, which, uh, Brenton, I think you've done in a blog post, perhaps. Um, you know, obviously Simon is a clear villain, whereas Considine, we're all a little mm -hmm. in awe of him. <laughs> uh, Joe gives you your next assignment, which is to find a quantitative definition for creepiness. <laughs> yeah. No, it should be creepification, Joe, based on my... Uh, yeah, watch Williams move up it throughout his life. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. um, so then here's a question that Chris is asking. Um, oh, creepological analysis. Thank you, Brenton. Excellent. So Chris is asking about another author. Do you think it would be worthwhile to try the same method on C.S. Lewis's Charles Williams book, That Hideous Strength? <laughs> um... Yeah, I don't see why not. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it would it it would be it would also it would also be quite interesting to um to maybe try it out on some of Yates' work um or people like Algernon Blackwood's um uh, yeah kind of other writers that were specifically involved in occult societies um and yeah on on yeah on things like that hideous strength that would be really cool. Can we co-write my dissertation? You can do it on all 12 writers that I'm studying and you can add the uh, hard science part to my literary analysis. Yeah, that would be awesome. Um, those are the main questions. Gabriel had another one about how you chose Williams because initially you were gonna use Tolkien. Was it primarily because of your work in the Inklings and King Arthur class or were there other motivating factors it was yeah I mean I've, I've always been I've always been a fan of Williams um yeah I've read his novels for years um but yeah it yeah it was mainly because of the work that we did in the Inklings and King Arthur class so thanks Gabriel <laughs> that's awesome I mean it's just it's poetry it's Arthurian poetry yeah yeah I think I I think I forget sometimes and I don't think I'd read Williams in a very long time until I did that class and I think I'd forgotten just just like how much I loved his work, really. 
Um, and I was like, yeah. And I was kind of like scraping around trying to find a, a, a thesis title and nothing, nothing that I was thinking about was, was really working. Um, so, so yeah. And then I thought of this and I was like, well, that's it, isn't it? Yeah, that'll do. Yeah, <laughs> clearly. Um, oh, I started to tell the audience the two things about your thesis that blew my mind that I only got through the one of them, which was the fricative thing. The other is how you just really honed in and pointed up on that he believes that this writing is actually creating metaphysical mm -hmm. realities. Yes, mm -hmm. like it's actually yeah. doing something on the imaginative plane that is somehow objective, even if unverifiable through the scientific method. But then it, it allows me as the reader, what, to inhabit that imaginative plane or to experience it? I'm not sure what verb to use there. Do you want to yeah. elaborate on that a bit more? I chose experience. Rather, yeah, <laughs> because, um, because, yeah, I mean, it, it's kind of, it's, you know, it's, it's assuming, it's assuming a reader experience is, is uniform and it's, it's assuming that um, a reader will experience exactly what the author intends the reader to experience, which obviously doesn't, doesn't really happen. Um, so, so I think it, yeah, it's more of like a, I suppose it's more of like a, a gateway. And I think, I think that it, it's kind of like, I think, you know, if Williams was writing it with that intention, I think that he would have intended the reader to, to be able to experience that imaginative plane. But in reality, it's probably more like a, a kind of a step up, you know, a, a kind of a, a nudge in the right direction, if you like. <laughs> and then and then kind of people who read people who read it, who are kind of either like inclined to that sort of thing or or you know there's yeah there's 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 just something that that kind of triggers it may you know could like actually be able to experience it how how Williams intended it I suppose um yeah the idea of the of the novel kind of being physically created um is really interesting it does it links to um to ideas of of sub-creation um because but I mean, I, do, I was thinking about this the other day, actually. I don't think that it is the same kind of thing as, as like Tolkien sub-creation. Um, it's, it's, it's kind of, um, how did I put it? Sorry. <laughs> so if Tolkien's, if Tolkien's idea of sub-creation is, is kind of making, like kind of creating in the manner in which you were made, that, that is, that's, that's kind of a, um, it's more of a personal thing. It's, it's much more of an internal thing. Whereas Williams is talking about sub-creation as as a kind of as a thing that's that's like higher than oneself that can be shared. So you're not you're not creating a personal world. You're creating a collective world um, mm. that's, that's up here. Um, I don't know. That might not make any sense at all. I was going to ask if Williams is. <laughs> concept is more platonic but then as you were talking i was thinking oh maybe it's more jungian mm. both of which of course involve types and archetypes yes <laughs> um yeah i haven't thought all of this through properly no. yet i don't know if williams thinks that he's creating something brand new on the imaginative plane or whether he's revealing yeah. like a platonic form that's already there like mm. happens in the place of the lion yes yeah and we we spoke about this like very briefly in terms of um in terms of his his religious beliefs as well didn't we um so 
and I was going to go down that road and now I can't actually remember what we said. <laughs> <Me neither. laughs> I, I think he's just... yeah I was, I was trying to think which in which one in Tolkien's or Williams view in which one does the artist have even more autonomy which one is more ex nihilo and which one is more you know creating the shadow of a of a copy and I don't I don't know no no no, neither do I. Okay. Well, Scott has a question that might help push us along yeah. the line of thinking. He asks, does Williams believe the imaginative plane exists in this world as opposed to the creation of a secondary alternate world? Well, no, you're wondering that answer. I mean, one of the major difference between his novels and those of his Inklings fellows is that his take place here. You know, we don't go through yeah. a portal into Narnia or we don't, you know, follow the hobbits into Middle Earth. Okay, yes, Middle Earth is prehistory, as I don't know about. Um, but, you know, instead we have something supernatural invading rural England or downtown London. That's a major yeah. But it's always. Um, it's always the kind of the invasion is is always that it's an invasion it's in the sense of this shouldn't be happening um so i suppose in that sense hmm. in that sense you know is it is it is it really both is is part of the way that he's he's kind of encouraging that bridge is by kind of situating situating the magical in the mundane um yeah so that so that you know you're you're not you're the novel is is kind of created on the imaginative plane but but the yeah link, because the he doesn't he doesn't plane. recognize that distinction isn't it um hmm. is it in t.s Eliot's preface to all Hallows eve talks about williams as the man of everyone he ever knew who didn't see a difference between the natural hmm. and the supernatural maybe that's not Eliot. maybe that's Auden or um, Gresham, I don't remember, all of whom wrote intros to William's works. Yeah. But yeah, he, he didn't like the word supernatural, he liked arch natural because Not he natural. really didn't see a division between them. He really saw that the two realms were so intimately interrelated that it didn't really make sense to talk about the difference between them. And yet you're right that when the supernatural tears its way through, it's it's dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. It's never a good thing. It has to be put back. <laughs> or sometimes it takes someone with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 It takes someone with it in order to be put back. Hmm. And sometimes that person is the bridge or the, you mm. know, the channel by whom it. Yeah. And Brenton is pointing out arch natural is arch as in higher, but also as in foundational. Yeah. Isn't it interesting that mm. prefix means both of those things above yeah. it and below it in some ways. Yeah. Um, is this what I was thinking of? Um, whether or not Williams was a mystic. He knew and could put into words states of consciousness of a mystical kind. Um, if mysticism believe, means a belief in the supernatural and its operation in the natural world, then Williams was a mystic. Uh, yeah, that's not what I was looking for, but that's still useful. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Wow. Does anybody have any more questions? And Scott says, wonderful presentation and amazing research.
Thank you. You didn't get a lot of technical questions about like no. what software you use and how you coded <laughs> and all that sort of thing, <laughs> um, which is just an amazingly impressive and huge, huge work that you did um, in transcribing the entire novel into IPA, feeding <laughs> yeah. the machine and telling the machine what to do with it. Yeah, there were moments during that when, um, yeah, there were dark moments during that. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people here wouldn't understand the technical answers. There was someone who asked the questions. <laughs> yes. Well, that was brilliant work. We thank you very much. We look forward to seeing your publications and seeing what yeah. you do next. Um, I'm going to be very like self-serving here and invite you all to an event tomorrow where I get to chat about some of my research with Joe Rickey who's hosting these Friday fellowship events. So it actually would follow really nicely on the heels of Gwen's presentation because what she did to the novels, I'm doing to some plays, but not with the technical analysis <laughs> through various other kinds of literary analysis. So y'all are invited. Um, Kate Fleet says, congratulations. Brenton says, super cool, great job. Phil Knight says, was blown away by the amount of work that must have gone into transcoding, <laughs> let alone the research afterwards. Great oh, stuff. Chris yeah. <laughs> uh, Swank had said, congratulations before she had to skedaddle. So everyone is very, very pleased with your research. Awesome. Um, Thanks, everyone. So thank you, Gwen. And thank you, everyone, yeah, thank for attending, you your attention, and your good questions. Yeah. All right, I will sign us off now. Goodbye, everyone. Bye, Bye Gwen. Bye. <laughs>